0: Hi there. You're listening to One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. This podcast is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Online at 107.com. We all have a story don't we? We've all had successes and failures, joy and disappointment, love and sadness. And yet we've all made it to here, to right now. Our stories are one amongst eight billion others. Eight billion other stories, each of them unique, each of them grand in their own way, and each of them a window into the humanity that connects us all. One of 8 billion tells life stories from around the world. Let's listen. Our story today is about Tolu Adeli, the co-founder of AJ Tennis Academy International, a group that is working to provide opportunity and inspiration for kids in developing countries Through sports. For Tolu, opportunity is a gift to be nurtured and shared and sports are a way to even the playing fields for kids around the world. That's why he co-founded the Academy and is using tennis to help kids in emerging economies achieve their potential. Let's listen. Welcome to One of Eight Billion, would you please introduce yourself?
1: The name is Tolu Adolai. A bit about me, born in DC to Nigerian parents and spent much of my formative years in various parts of Nigeria for boarding school, which included middle school and and high school. I moved back to the US in my mid teens. I went to college in Maryland, worked on the East Coast after college in Jersey, New York, Philadelphia, and a few other cities on the East Coast. Then left for business school, again on the East Coast in Boston, worked there for a little bit, and then a few years ago moved to
0: Minneapolis for a job. And here I am speaking with you today. It's lovely to have you on. I'm so glad to be talking to you. I don't often talk to people who are expats and have returned to the United States. Usually the story is I started outside of the United States and I immigrated and here's my story. But you have parents who are Nigerian, born in the U.S., became an expat, and then came back. So tell me a little bit about your childhood and what caused all of that.
1: So I didn't have a whole lot of choice in becoming an expat since I was only about three or four years old (laughs) when I left. And my parents didn't exactly consult me in that decision. <laughs> I finished high school a little early at about 15, and my parents essentially gave me the choice: become a Nigerian citizen and go to school here, or head back to the U.S. with your passport, and here's a few dollars to help you get settled there. But we will not be returning with you, and we will not be supporting you. And good luck to you, with whatever happens to you. I haven't been away from my parents six years prior. Taking the next step and becoming fully independent, to me, at that point, seemed like a logical next step. I had a brother who had been in the States in the same context, born in the U.S. and had returned a year before I did. He was about 17 or 18 years old. So we met up with him, moved here and got a job at McDonald's and started college and paid my way both with the money I made and some scholarships and some financial aids here and there to help me sell
0: through college. And what does your now look like? You're in Minnesota. You've moved here for a job. What does your now look like? It's a good question.
1: Now has been a bit challenging. Moved here for a job just in terms of context. I've got an MBA. So I've been in the business world, both in management consulting and investment banking. And I've done both of those things, both for (laughs) consulting investment shops. And I've also done it internally for uh, some big Fortune 500 companies. A few years ago, a few friends and I co-founded an organization called AJ Tennis Academy International. The mission of the academy is to leverage tennis to help kids around the world, mostly in emerging economies, achieve their potential. So I spent some time working on that evening, weekends, and holidays, including travel, administrative work that that required, as well as doing my normal job. Unfortunately, about a few years ago, I got in a car accident, suffered a bit of a brain injury, I've been having a little trouble getting back to my normal self, so going through a bit of medical and some other, and rehab, trying to get myself back uh, to normal shape. But in the meantime, while I recover, I'm spending time resting my brain to help it recover, as well as spending some time on the academy, trying to see if I can give it a little more energy to get it to the ideal state. And the ideal state is to build a world-class tennis academy somewhere in an emerging country. Right now, the target is Nigeria, where we can have continuous structured and more planned program for these kids.
0: That's an incredible aspirational goal for, for an academy of that sort. I know that tennis was a big thing for me growing up in South Africa and playing tennis as a young kid. And Growing up watching Boris Becker and Stefan Edberg and all of the guys that played in the 80s and 90s at very young ages achieve such success and wondering how I could do that, not realizing that, Mm. of course, I didn't have the talent that they did, but But it was a dream. So I imagine that there are so many young lives that could be changed across Africa in that way. Oh, absolutely. What I find interesting is,
1: Ivan, if you can allow me to give you just a little bit of phased history here. If you look back in the 70s and 80s, where the Americans and the Eastern Europeans sort of dominated tennis, right? So you have your Becker, your Borgs, your Connors, and whatnot. And then if you look at in the last 10, 15 years, when your Eastern Europeans Dominated tennis, right? Your Ljubetic, your Djokovic, and many others. If you look at Serbia, a country of about five point five million people that has had a lot of talented people, you know, and Ivanovic and, and many of those people. And then you think <laughs> of what happened fifteen years prior was essentially the opening up of Eastern Europe, where those mm. opportunities essentially flooded eastward, and these people became incredibly hungry and now have emerged on the scene. The question I ask myself, is this a time for Africa? Opening up of the opportunity in in Africa so that these kids can have an opportunity. And they can't come to the U.S., but can we take the opportunity to do them? And one of the things I've done the last few years, while I recover from my brain injuries, I literally traveled about 15 countries in Africa, everywhere from Nigeria to Ghana to Ivory Coast, to Rwanda to Kenya to Congo, speaking with the tennis authorities and sharing my vision with them to say, hey, look, we can bring talents here to help train the next generation of tennis players. So if you think about what gymnastics is to China and to Russia, what soccer is to Brazil, what short distance running is to Jamaica, what long distance running is to, to Ethiopia and that part of the world. Can tennis become what it is right now for either Nigeria or Rwanda? But for that to happen, there needs to be a development of an ecosystem. So everything from identifying talent to training, to competition, to exit strategy, and then an opportunity to reintegrate them back into the tennis community, that ecosystem needed to be built. And my job or my passion is to help build this with which whatever government was interested in partnering with us to help accomplish this vision.
0: I love this vision. I love the fact that you are attempting to help so many people in one fell swoop. I think that's wonderful. Did you want to play tennis when you were young? What did you want to do when you were growing up? Is that even a thing in your mind? Ivan, that's a great question.
1: I think back to my driving ideas when I was a kid and I avasted it from wanting to be a wild refuge, a wild animal refuge person because I loved your <laughs> geographic. At one point, a gas station attendant because I saw their pockets bulging with cash and I thought <laughs> that's an easy way to make, to make money, eventually into business and whatnot. The thing I never wanted to essentially never thought about was in sports. The idea of sports for most African parents is considered a waste of time. So I never, besides some sort of occasional running and stretching and whatnot in my primary school and, and boarding school, there was never really any, any sort of attention to sports and was highly discouraged, certainly by my parents and by my teachers. But in my early 30s, when I came upon tennis, I began to realize how important sports is, not just to the physical development, but also in terms of mental development and tenacity I was reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outlier, a few years ago, and this is part of what what led me to this idea. And he talked about how a lot of students from great public schools who were just top-notch academics but never really played any sports leave their public schools and end up at top academic schools, whether it's your Harvard or your Yale or your Illinois Champaign or whatnot. And they now compete with the best of the best from their regions. What ends up happening is these people end up getting their first B or their first C or their first D ever in their lives, and then they become very crestfallen. Typically, what happens is they end up leaving college or changing their major or doing something else because they can't seem to deal with the idea of failure. But the ones that always happen to bounce back from this experience are those that have played sports. Because if you've played sports, you've learned to fail. And then want to recover. And of all sports, tennis, no matter how good you are, whether you're Nadal or you are the, the thousands in the world, you would have met the challenge or challenges on the court. And the ability to fail, to lose a set or a game or a match and shake it off and come back is an important tool, not just in sports, but also in life. And that's the tool that I've learned, unfortunately, very late for me in life. But what I want to do is, can I teach this to kids at the much youngest point in their lives?
0: I love tennis as a metaphor for life. There are so many great programs in the United States and in Minnesota, especially. There's this Tennis and Life camp that happens at Gustavus, and they have this amazing perspective that how you behave on the tennis court is how you should behave in life. And it's all about the humanity and the game and being able to lose graciously, but also be able to be on a team and to win graciously. They have these camps that happen every summer and families go and young teenagers go and young kids go. It's it's just such a wonderful metaphor for life. And I guess I've never really thought about that until my recent years. And I was playing tennis when I was 10. And I just thought it was cool to be able to hit a ball hard. But now <laughs> when I think about it, it's yeah. got such a great parallel and such a great way of teaching kids about success and failure. I love that idea.
1: I completely agree with you. And, and to even expound on that idea, I was listening to a gentleman uh, who coached Sampras and the Williams sisters and, and whatnot, Nick Bollettieri. Still going strong. I think he's an eighty-six year old now, but yeah, still going right. strong. But he talked about how there are over five hundred of these programs, these tennis programs, across the US. In a country of about, you know, three hundred and fifty million people. But wanna know how many of these programs there are across Africa in a continent, about one point one billion people. Two?
0: How many None. are there? None? None? There are None.
1: zero, really. Zero. There's, a, there's an academy, obviously, in South Africa where Lloyd Harris, I think, spent some time. But that's obviously geared toward people with money and who, whose who parents can afford, can afford have, to do it. But across the rest of it, uh, there isn't much else.
0: Why do you think Africa is ready for tennis? I, I would say
1: three reasons. Number one, I, I think with the increase in wealth, not as fast as it should go, you've seen a, a good, steady increase over the last 10 years. And what happens is, When people get a bit wealthier, their health become what's next. Now I'm eating all this big food and I'm doing all this thing. I need to get healthy and live longer. So there is general awareness of health consciousness because of some increase in wealth. That's number one. And the number two, because of the global nature of increasingly social media and cable TV and whatnot, there is a strong interest in tennis now. Here's an example. When my partners and I started this, started this nonprofit, we weren't really quite sure what to expect but we thought we'll partner with some local programs in Nigeria and just go out there with some tennis balls some t-shirts some rackets and a bunch of things that our good partners have been kind enough to raise for us and see what happens. Ivan we showed up and there were kids lined up around the corner who just wanted to be a part of this and really? over the last four or five years we've had over 5,000 kids come through our program. Right. This is with minimal marketing, with minimal broadcasting. They just want to be a part of this. And they're yearning to, to differentiate themselves and become a mm-hmm. part of something interesting. So there's a yearning for that. And I think, again, the attendance of our program is a testament to that. And then I think number three, I would say, is just a general interest in government to find ways to become more relevant so a chance to put ourselves on the map. You look at the top 100 players, there's always a flag next to your name. And you, besides South Africa, whether with Kevin Anderson or with Lloyd Iris, you don't really find any African country there. And I think this was, this was some of the things I, I heard about when I was meeting with these officials. How come we can have our name next to one of our people? I'm sorry, our flag next to one of the people from our continent. And I said, good question, but it doesn't come easily. You need to invest in it. You need to spend time developing it. And I'm happy to do that if you will let me and if you give me the infrastructure I need to make it happen.
0: It's very inspirational. I so admire what you're trying to do for Africa and for all the people who would clearly love to play tennis from the sounds of things. it's a great It's a great sport. It's very inspirational for me. Have you had an inspiration in life, a memorable boss or a leader that you worked for or someone you respected that gave you that drive, that inspiration that you are giving to young people today? Indeed, I have.
1: The person I'm thinking of is a gentleman named Robert Pagano, who was a partner at Deloitte Consulting, where I worked for many years, both before and after business school. I remember when I first met with him, I was this 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid, and he had just made partner, and I looked up to him so much. But every time we were meeting with a big client, and we were with you know, some of the world's biggest private equity who were doing some big work, he would look to me and defer to me and say, Totally, what do you think? Not as a chance to sort of intimidate me you or know, to put me on the spot, but because it's like this area... You are more familiar with this. I would defer to you, which in that world, in a world of sort of battle of egos, these partners and those who are in that sphere of stratospheric height
0: <laughs> want yeah.
1: to hug all the time, every time, especially around clients. But he would always defer to me and let ask me to go for a walk. And I'm not sure he intended to do it, but for me, because he deferred to me because he wanted to know what I genuinely thought. It made me wanted to work harder. It gave me a lot of confidence and certainly inspired me quite a lot. So that's what I would say was, and I would say Robert Pagano, Bob Pagano as I call him, as uh, one of my, one of the guys that really inspired me a lot.
0: What inspires you today to do the work that you do? By way of context,
1: and this is not to give myself any pat in the back, one of my passions is traveling. I love to pick up and go, and the farther, the more remote, the better. I've touched down in over 142 countries around the globe. My goal is to potentially touch every of them. I think there's about 193 recognized by the United Nations. And the one thing I found is the sameness, the passion, the love for family, Whatever it is that you think makes us unique as Americans or as Nigerian or as South African, you find in every part of the world. Then you ask yourself, why are they either well above the poverty line or below the poverty line? What makes them different from me? And then you start to realize it is basically just, it's it's almost, I'm sure those who are more religious and those who believe in destination or, or, or higher planning might have their own theories, but I would just say it's a randomness of life. And what inspires me is if I can bend the arc of destiny, to borrow the words of MLK, slightly for one or two or three or hundred or thousand people to help change the course of their life, it would be worth every effort. And in this part of this world, that doesn't take a whole lot. Sometimes it's money, but I think it's sometimes money tends to be the, the cheap and the quickest thing to do, but not always the longer thing to think, to, uh, way to help out. But if you can help with that opportunity, if you can help inspire, if you can help them dream bigger, better, then you can help them change their course of destiny. And that's what inspires me. We're all the same. I just happen to be born. In a place that allows me a blue passport, and and with that some benefit in life. It doesn't make me any smarter. It doesn't make me any more hardworking. It doesn't make me any more wiser. I just happen to be opportuned, and can I extend that opportunity to somebody else? And that's what this is all about.
0: I love how you described our humanity as having common sameness as having the thing that inspires you is the fact that we're all the same. We all have a story, we're all one of eight billion on this huge planet. And the fact that you can say you've only hit 142 countries, you have to get to that 193. That's, inspi- <laughs> That's inspiring for me. It sounds like you've been all over the world and that you have good data and evidence to, to see that we're all the same. And that makes me feel connected it makes me feel like we're on the right track. When you think of that number of 8 billion people on the planet, and you and I are one of each of them, and we each have a story, how does that make you feel? Both daunted and inspired. There's this picture that sort of
1: goes around. I don't, you've probably seen it. I can't remember which satellite or rocket that was launched many years ago that took a picture, I think just past Jupiter. Think of this page of darkness, right? And then there's this little tiny dot, and there's an arrow that says you are here. It sort of puts all of our problems, all that we worry about, into context. And it's, it's, almost, it's almost like an afterthought, like you are nothing in the vastness of emptiness. Then if you are indeed nothing, maybe there isn't some big plan. It also says, hey, you know what? This is all nothing anyway. Wanna not give you your best? to help the next person so that they can have some level of pleasure, some level of attainment, some level of achievement in their life. So that by the time, whenever our time is done here, tomorrow, tonight, next year, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, where I have fought the good fight to leverage passage from the great apostle Paul, and I am done. Or another passage that says, be ashamed to die until you won." some victory for humanity. And for me, it's about what fight am I fighting because victory connotes some kind of fight. And that's what it's all about. And then by the time we're done, and when we evaporate into that nothingness, at least others might believe in the afterlife. I think we all have credible claims to whatever we believe in. It is, I am done. I have fought the good fight. I've tried to win my victory and I'm both inspired by it. Because whatever it is, we're all going to evaporate into something else. Eventually. And it's daunting to say, does it really matter after all? <laughs>
0: right. You mentioned your brain injury. What has been your greatest struggle in life? Ivan, I would say it's, this has been
1: the hardest. And I'll tell you why. All of my life, whether it's primary school, boarding school, college, or whatnot, I live by schedule. I remember in boarding Mm. school, the rising bell goes off at 5.30. And I'm sorry if if my voice is cracking because this is bringing me to a different place. 5.30 was rising bell. 6.30 was uh, breakfast. And then our lives were scheduled from there on. We had eight different subjects every day from 8.10 until 1.50. And then afternoon study time and evening, afternoon nap time, evening study time, all the way to 10.30 at night. Every day for six years through middle and high school. And then through college and through working and then after this brain injury, there's essentially been a pause on life. It is just basically just having to just live every day with who knows how much pain I'm going to have to go through today. What can I deal with today to help me through the pain? And it's going through rehab and medication and doctor's visits and injections and hoping that I could get a little relief to help me live one more day without pain. So going through this process, not quite knowing what's next, it's been tough. It's been the toughest day having to fight through a lot of emotions and a lot of, you know, that comes with the uncertainty. But in spite of that, knowing that I'm still fortunate, I live in a country that I know there is a safety net that if things go really bad, they could take care of me. I, I can still, fortunately, still play some tennis, even if it's with some level of pain. I have family and friends that love me and take care of me. So not my ideal, but I still consider myself very lucky. And maybe this is some the universe's way of helping me focus more on this tennis academy, because if I were working full-time, it would probably be near the back burner. But now it's always my forethought and ability. How can I do better? How can I be more productive with this time? Is a mm-hmm. question always behind every day.
0: What makes you smile? When I watch a
1: beautiful tennis
0: match, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I am
1: an addict, I watch tennis all day, but now that I have more time, I watch all the tournaments, and watching these people being at their best is, is a beautiful thing, and it makes me smile. What makes me smile, it's a connection with humans every day. I can work full-time, and I still deal with some pain, I'm able to travel here and there, and those moments when I'm able to connect with another human who speaks a very different language for me, who has to borrow your words, a different story from me, but somehow we're able to find that connection, whether it's over tennis, on a tennis court, whether it's over travel, or whether it's over food. That's a reason to smile.
0: It is. It definitely is. You talked a little bit about your brain injury and the struggle that you have. How has it changed your perspective on life and maybe the meaning of life?
1: I would start by saying I'm still learning, because I ask myself every day, I ask myself that question every day, and I'm still hoping for that profound answer that sort of shakes <laughs> my foundation. It's helped me better understand the fragility, the frailty, and the fleetingness of life. This happened in an instant. It was on a Friday night, I'd worked full-time, worked all day, spent I'd gotten up at 5 a.m., gone to the gym, worked all day, met up with some friends, and I was heading home around midnight when the car ran red light and hit the Uber in which I was. Then in oh instant, in an instant, about four years ago, my life changed. It's made the fragility and the fleetiness of life more real to me. And that every day is is a day to be grateful for and to make the best of it. I wish I could tell you something more profound. But I think the script has still been written.
0: I think the simplicity of what you've said is what's profound. You hear people talk about, oh, I, I'm i trying to seize the day. I'm trying to make sure I'm happy with what's going on now. But until something happens and until you have that own self-realization that all you really have is now, like that's the profound part of what I think you're describing. Thank you. I'm sorry that you had that accident. That's absolutely awful. And. It was showing the best in your recovery.
1: Thank you. Like I said, it's a day at a time. I'm making progress, not as much, not as fast or as quickly as I would like it to be, because of course we all want it to be done yesterday. But every day without intense pain is a day for which to be grateful.
0: One final question What do you hope you'll see in your lifetime that you haven't seen yet? I go back to tennis,
1: and this is a, <laughs> this is what drives me. I told you I watch all these tournaments. Miami is going on right now, and watching these beautiful people play the beautiful sport of tennis. I was and watched Indian Wells. You know, Indian Wells, yeah, wasn't tennis. that incredible? And I was amazing. Unfortunately, my guy didn't win, but that's Nadal. And I've been some of these tournaments, whether it's in Estonia or in Abuja, Nigeria, or in Roland Garros, or at, at the Billings King Center in New York. What I hope to see is a facility like that in Nigeria or Rwanda, whichever country we end up partnering with, where these kids come in shy and with selfie facing and, and almost hiding behind their own shell and watching tennis help them become more exposed, more confident and more curious about the world in which they live and it's happening every day, and they become part of this global community, and have bigger dreams, higher aspirations, and deeper inspirations, that is what I hope to see.
0: That would be amazing. I'm am so grateful for the time you've spent with me today. It's precious, and it's important, and I'm so happy that you were able to spend the time talking to me about your life, and about tennis, and about being one of eight billion. Thank you so
1: much for giving me this
0: time, Ivan. You
1: guys are amazing. You guys are doing great work. I love this idea. It immediately connected with me because for me, the purpose of travel is to continually find that sameness that connects us all. It's almost like the question that Einstein was trying to ask, what is it that connects everything in the universe? I'll leave that to Einstein because he's obviously much smarter than I would ever be. The question I ask is what connects us all? What is it that connects us all? And that is, for me, an interesting quest in my travels, in my meetings, and in my connections with people.
0: We are, after all, the same, aren't we? It doesn't we matter where we're all. from. Exactly. Exactly. I hope you'll join us in the next episode of One of Eight Billion when we hear from Ernesto Tagworker, the founder of a software boutique called Umbu Labs. My mom, it's a different story. She studied to be an attorney. She became an
1: attorney, even being pregnant. And I think she took probably like the last final exam while being pregnant with me. But she's actually been the entrepreneur of the family all along. And I've learned so much from her. And I've learned a lot from my dad, too. I definitely learn a lot from them, and just making sure that I am getting as much value for my time as I possibly
0: can is a big lesson that I have for my parents. This has been one of eight billion, a podcast about all of us online at one of8b.com. Join us again next time. as we listen, to one of eight billion other stories. One of eight billion is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Find out more at 107.com. I'm Ivan Stegic. Thank you for listening.